This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, it is 9-11, so it's going to be a very 9-11 theme show, 19 years since that fatal day. Uh, Morgan Ortegas will be joining us shortly. She actually put on the uniform she fought uh, in our, with our military, now in the State Department, a key assistant to the Secretary of State. Uh, she'll be coming to us from Washington, where they're going to be at the Pentagon with a lot of attention, and there'll also be things going on at the White House. Mark Thiessen will be with us. Not only is he a terror expert, speechwriter for George W. Bush, really has a perspective on taking the fight uh, from here on in and the terror threat that still exists uh, even today. President of the United States uh, left this morning over to Shanksville. Joe Biden will be there a little bit later. Why? That's where Flight 93 crashed. They've really done a great job of making that a national memorial on this 19th anniversary of those attacks. He will lay a wreath at the uh, Flight 93 National Memorial Wall of Names. Then they'll come back out, um, and he'll go to uh, Johnston, Pennsylvania, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and he will uh, he'll fly back. The vice president right now is in New York. He's about to speak. He is uh, where the Tunnel for Towers is in uh, Biscotti Park in New York City. That is adjacent to where the World Trade Center stood. Why? Because they thought because of COVID-19, uh, they say it was the Memorial Museum's decision. They will not read the names. That's when Stephen, um, that's when Frank Siller decided we're going to do the names and people are going to hear their names. So that is where... Uh, Vice President Pence is right now with his wife, uh, Karen Pence. So we'll keep you up to date on what's happening. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. 9 11, 19 years later. That, of course, President Bush. How, as a nation, we mark the day and how both the president and Joe Biden will commemorate the attack in response. Where were you? Uh, what we and what have we learned? Number two. We uh, don't realistically anticipate that we would be moving to either tier two or to reopening uh, K through twelve schools at least through uh, at least until after the election. Do you believe this? Uh, say it out loud, why don't you? Coronavirus and the economy. Can you believe what you just heard from a Los Angeles school official about reopening schools and stores? Waiting for Election Day? Hurting kids in our country to win an election? Is this the same game plan for Cuomo and Newsom? Newsom, of course, governor of the entire state. Cuomo uh, in charge of a state that has under 1% uh, effective uh, infected rates. They would rather hurt Trump than help us. Plus, the latest on a vaccine and the sudden optimism about beating COVID-19. Number one. If Bob Woodward thought it was bad, then he should have immediately gone out publicly, not wait four months. You know, he's had that statement for four months, maybe five months. He's had it for a long time. It was a series of taped interviews, mostly by telephone. 
Uh, that is the president uh, talking about why he spent nine hours and 18 separate interviews with Bob Woodward uh, and talked about his revelation that he knew the virus was serious but didn't want to panic the people. 2020, the president takes on Joe Biden and Bob Woodward with revelations from the press room and other on stage in Michigan. He decides to speak out in front of those who like him most while the former VP actually sat down for an interview. And again, misremembered his past on trade and more. But the bigger story is what Pelosi and Schumer revealed about his agenda that should uh, should he get elected, our country will change dramatically. Hey, should he get elected? Let's focus on climate change. Wouldn't that be fantastic? And some little bit of socialism going to Senator Markey. Wouldn't that be great? We'll talk about that. And I'll talk about 9-11 if things uh uh, things uh, uh, break, we'll, we'll cut in when the president speaks. We'll obviously take that. So let's talk about an issue, an issue like trade. President of the United States got elected saying our trade deals are bad. TPP, which is going to be a really a Pacific trade agreement to counter China, Barack Obama wanted. Joe Biden was desperate to have. But Senator Schumer, to his credit, wasn't for it. And Joe and a lot of Republicans were for it. But guess who wasn't for it? Donald Trump. Donald Trump wins. TPP dies. It actually lived, but in a, just in a regional plan. So NAFTA gets redone. It's not the USMCA. Guess who signed off and pushed NAFTA? Joe Biden. Now he's coming back and saying, well, there should have been some more uh, policing of this and some accountability. That's what George Bush 41 promised me. Got news for you. George Bush 41 tried for it, but Bill Clinton got it. And I believe, according to reports, he's a Democrat. So Joe Biden's got to deal with his past and understand he's on the wrong side of that trade deal. Cut five. 80,000 good paying jobs came back. He's lost 50,000 of those jobs since he's been president. The fact of the matter is NAFTA was not the deal that was sold. When Bush said we were going to have enforcement mechanisms in NAFTA, they didn't do it. That's why after it passed and, and he did not insist on that, I was against NAFTA and we tried to begin to change it because it didn't keep the deal that was made. There was none. The enforcement mechanism, mechanisms were abandoned. It's called mechanisms. But, Joe, Bill Clinton is the one that didn't put the enforcement mechanisms in. He won. Sadly, he beat George Bush 41. And he knew the economy was turning around. He won the Persian Gulf War and helped uh, disassemble the Soviet Union. So the USMCA affects dairy farmers. Who's in dairy dairy farmers? They tell me uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin right away because of the Canadian deal. When it comes to auto manufacturing, it's really going to affect Michigan. Now Joe Biden's saying that was for NAFTA. Really? There goes manufacturing. Now your big thing is bring back, uh, bring back all these businesses. By upping the corporate tax, you can't do that. These businesses have investors and they have shareholders that want them to make the maximum money. So give them a reason to come back. Now look, I think that the President Trump has got to get more of these businesses back because he did what they asked. That's where he's vulnerable. He's not vulnerable on bringing businesses back because that's all he ran on. It's all he's doing. Maybe that's why you're stealing it. But for Joe Biden to eliminate himself from the NAFTA discussion that he voted for and supported as if we don't have the tape of 2007 when he defended NAFTA, NAFTA cut four, cut six. But I, but it doesn't agree with me. See, my problem is I voted for NAFTA. NAFTA in my state created more jobs than it lost jobs coming out of my state. And you can argue that on balance, it probably created more American jobs than it, than, than it lost. It goes to your point about there was dislocation. Some jobs got lost. Some job, jobs uh, uh, got created. 
But again, NAFTA wasn't the problem. Man, he sounds totally different there, doesn't he? He sounds so crisp. Can answer questions without thinking. Just says what's on his mind rather than winding up and uh, forgetting consonants or vowels. And I'm not making fun of him. I just don't want a, I want a president that's at least going, uh, has everything together. If you're going to pursue an agenda, no one ever questioned Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or George Bush 41's intellect. They, they called him weak. They called 43 dumb. Uh, Joe, Joe Biden never was whip smart, but he was, but he was sharp. He was sharp there in 2007. Here's Joe Biden admitting on CNN that the trade deal that Robert Lighthizer and President Trump came up with better. Cut seven. But doesn't he deserve some credit for that? It's better. The USMCA is better than NAFTA. It is better than NAFTA. I'll tell you what we did do. We inherited the greatest recession short of a depression. Right. I'll bring up something that doesn't matter. That makes a lot of sense. So great. Here's Donald Trump. He watched some of that interview on Air Force One. Cut eight. They said, which is better, NAFTA or the USMCA? He said, no, no, the USMCA. And Tapper goes, what? Couldn't believe it. He said, USMCA. He made a mistake. From his perspective, he made a mistake because he doesn't know what's going on. Even though he's right, he doesn't know. They were a little surprised to hear that. They gave him a few chances. Let's uh, ask that question again. We have a lot more to talk about. All I can tell you is this. I know the polls. We all look at the polls. Remember 2016. We know that there's a hit book from Mary Trump out. There's a hit book from Mike uh, Cohen out. Peter Strzok is basically a hit book on the president of the United States as he's compromised to Russia. Now we know about Bob Woodward's book. That's just now. I mean, that's just out now. I Let alone six months ago, two years ago. Oh, within six months, that Wolf book came out. We know that. This is the second book from Bob Woodward. First one's Fear. This is Rage. You could tell they're not complimentary. And I think the president, uh, I understand the president wanted to, probably should have spoke to him once, taped it, and that would be it. But he spoke to him 18 times. Probably a mistake, but it shows the confidence the president has in himself. There's only one candidate who gets crowds like that. There's only one candidate who goes to Michigan, sells out. The one who goes to Florida, sells out, goes to North Carolina, sells out. Uh, three, three sellouts in two days. I know he's trailing in those states, supposedly, according to most polls. It's just there's something different from what I'm seeing in the polls what I'm hearing in the media, and what's happening on the ground. Morgan Ortegas joins us next. We'll talk about 9-11, what it means to her. We're also going to talk about the drawdown of troops in Afghanistan 19 years later and uh, in Iraq and what it means. She has great perspective on what's happening from the State Department and as a warfighter. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. 
While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Let me bring in Morgan Ortegas. Uh, she used to be here helping us out on the show when she worked with Fox. Now she's doing something much more important, working for the State Department as one of the key spokespeople and aides to the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. And she joins us now. Morgan, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Good so, to talk to you two days in a row, Brian. Wow, it's unbelievable. The sec- Now, your boss, Secretary of State, is where? Uh, so he is probably getting close to Doha. He's uh, He took off last night, had to refuel in Europe, and now he's uh, headed headed to Doha and is probably landing soon. Will he be meeting with Taliban and Afghan government officials? Yeah, so what you'll, what you'll see happening tomorrow morning, which will be very early uh, U.S. time, um, you'll see uh, he will be leading at 9.30 in Doha, so I think it's like 3.30 in the morning on the East Coast for us. Uh, he will be taking part in the opening ceremony of what we call intra-Afghan negotiations. And so this is where you have a, a very historic moment um, where we're trying to get to peace. You'll have members of the government of Afghanistan, of the Taliban, of civil society, uh, women, et cetera, and, of course, the United States uh, trying to get together to end America's longest war. So the one thing that you know better than most is that the Taliban can't be trusted. They hate women, music, kites. Yep. Um, and on basically a, about 10 percent of the population likes the Taliban, yet they got the guns and they have the money. How do we successfully deal with a country like well, an organization like that? Well, it's incredibly tough, as you just laid off, laid out. And, you know, listen, Mike Pompeo, before he was secretary of state, was a CIA director. Um, and so and, and he worked on these issues on the Hill as well when he was a member of Congress. So uh, so he there, there's no pulling any wool over his eyes. He knows exactly who he's dealing with. But he also has to look at the, at the mission set out by uh, President Trump, his boss. And that is, you know, today, uh, it's a pretty historic day. Obviously, we're looking at nine, uh, 19 years ago today. Uh, we were attacked on, on 9-11, you know, by terrorists. And here we are two decades later, still engaged in Afghanistan. And so Secretary Pompeo got together with the DOD and people like General Miller, who's our lead uh, uh, commanding general in Afghanistan and is one of the most um, just prolific, impressive generals uh, that we have in, in, in the United States. It all means incredibly impressive. And we know there's no uh, way to militarily uh, end the war. So uh, what we have been doing over the past year and a half is taking the president's uh, mandate to try to get to these peace negotiations that we're starting today. 
uh, tomorrow, excuse me. But as you said, they're going to be incredibly hard. They're going to be complicated. Getting people, if you look at the history, uh, throughout history, right, since the beginning of time, if you look at the end of conflicts, especially when you have are, are trying to bring together an insurgent group and uh, a government and, and trying to get uh, the insurgent group to lay down arms and the government to come together and have peace, this is the hardest stuff that we do in diplomacy. It's not easy. It's going to take time. Um, but I think that we have the advantage of when we come to the negotiating table, when Mike Pompeo and, and Zami Khalil is our, our uh, ambassador from the Bush administration and our special representative um, to Afghanistan, when these when these guys sit down at the table, they're sitting down and, and people know that President Trump uh, well, means what he says. No, that's that true. But Morgan, what if they say tear up your constitution? Uh, we want Taliban. We, we want to start with our own constitution. What if the Taliban insists on that? Say that one more time. What if the, what what if the, the Taliban, Taliban insists on, on telling the Afghanistan government the only reason we'll, we'll deal with you is if you tear up your constitution and put the old one in? Yeah, so if you look at their announcement yesterday, uh, we were encouraged, at least when they talked, when the, everybody made announcements, the U.S., Qatar, government of Afghanistan, Taliban. Uh, when, the Tal- when the Taliban made their announcement yesterday, we were encouraged that it did not include, you know, any, any of the demands that would be all over the place. There's going to be, listen, you and I can sit here and go through 100 issues that are going to be fraught and, and hard. But the, but the thing that we have to remember, and the secretary stressed this yesterday, and we'll stress this in person to them. I, you know, I've been with the secretary numerous times when he has met with the Taliban and with the, and with Ghani and Abdullah and all the leadership in the, Af- in the Afghan government. Um, and the secretary is going to demand on, on making sure that, that women's rights are represented, uh, that the will of the Afghan people is, is, is represented in these negotiations. I hope so. Yeah. So we are by no means going to hand over right. the, the, the I do want to get uh, gotcha. Morgan, I want to get you to Iraq. This is what General Jack Keane said about uh, what is happening in Iraq with the drawdown. The prime minister from Iraq uh, welcomed some slight withdrawal of troops to help him politically in the country. This prime minister is the first of the three that has been elected by the people that has had the courage to stand up to the Iranians, and he's pushing back. So we need to reinforce him uh, politically. And one of the ways to help him politically is to keep a small military force there that's also assisting the Iraqi security forces. And they don't want us to leave because they have an ISIS threat that's still there. It's a modest investment with a long-term payoff for the United States and the security of the American people. So he feels optimistic that this drawdown helps the prime minister. Your thought? Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, uh, I love and adore and respect Jack Keane. He's just one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, he's amazing. I agree. Uh, and and he and the secretary are close as well. But I think I think I think uh, General Keane hit the nail on the on on the head there is that w- what we're looking to do is is twofold. And you and I talked about this on Fox and Friends yesterday. Is we're looking to to for the maturity and the sophistication of the uh, Iraqi security forces to make sure that they. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
through the training and the equipping that we've done can handle uh, the threat from ISIS or any or any terrorist or insurgent group. Uh, we'll obviously that's our mission set there. Um, and the president and the DOD have indicated that we will remain in, in order to continue to, to fulfill that mission set. But we also find it from, from our perspective at the State Department, our job is the diplomatic and the economic side. And we are just incredibly encouraged by the new prime minister, Kadami. It's obviously a very young administration, um, but we are able, we've been able to submit a number of business deals with them. Uh, you know, the people, the Iraqi people were in the streets, you know, over the past year, protesting against the previous government, protesting against uh, yeah. nefarious Iranian influence um, in Iraq. Uh, and, and, and those protests bore fruit. They now have a new government. Um, and, and, and largely, in, in many ways, many of the Iraqi people have, have rejected, you know, the undue influence by Iran. We've choked off a lot of that influence by our maximum economic pressure campaign so so that the Shia militias in Iraq don't have unlimited funds gotcha. to, wreck, to, uh, to wreck havoc there. So it's, it's a robust campaign. Yeah, Morgan, uh, best of luck in both places. They matter so much to, to our security. Morgan Ortegas. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I didn't get any sense that he was distorting anything. I mean, in my discussions with him, they were always straightforward about the, the concerns that we had. We related that to him. And uh, when he would go out, I'd hear him discussing the same sort of things. Wow. And that was Anthony Fauci asked about Bob Woodward's book where the president of the United States told Bob Woodward, this stuff is bad. It's airborne. This could be uh, deadly. And just paraphrasing. And they said, why is the president downplaying it? Well, the reason why I was downplaying it is because I don't want to panic people. And at the same time, he's got this scientist who everyone loves, Anthony Fauci, who said what you just heard. What was the date on that, Allison? That was uh, early. Yeah, that was yesterday talking about he didn't feel he distorted anything. And maybe that prompted Mark Thiessen to write his column in the Washington Post. If Trump lied, so did Fauci. Joining us now is Mark Thiessen. Hey, Mark. Good to be with you. Mark, people didn't realize I mean, Trump didn't keep it wasn't a private meeting. Uh, it wasn't a conversation with President Xi and him. He had he had experts around him who told him how bad it was. One of them was Anthony Fauci. Very much so. I mean, look, first of all, when he says he knew it was more deadly than the flu, that doesn't mean that the president knew that it was going to cause the kind of death and destruction that it did. So. He, he could have said equally Ebola is more deadly than the flu, which is a factual thing. He was he was being talking about the, the how, how it's a really serious virus, but nobody expected this to become something that would spread the way it did, that would shut down the economy, that would put tens of millions of people out of work, that would kill almost 200,000 people already. There's nobody, including Dr. Fauci. And I went through in my column, and you can read it on WashingtonPost.com, um, but I, I went through in my column. Everything that Dr. Fauci said for the three for the months leading up to the March March 16th, when President Trump uh, issued you know instituted the lockdown, and he was in lockstep with the president. He was saying, I mean, up to March 10th, I believe, he was saying that we're still at low risk in America. That was Dr. Fauci. He in 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 late February he was saying, don't wear masks. Uh, and that this is no more dangerous than the uh, – you should be more worried about the seasonal flu and go get a flu shot. 
and uh, and uh, don't wear masks and don't don't stop traveling. Uh, in early March, he said that older people who are at, at higher risk for the virus shouldn't go on cruise ships, but younger people go ahead, take a cruise. You know, so this is the man who was advising the president on what the, on what the dangers of the virus was. And so the idea that somehow Donald Trump was told in late January that this was a ser- very serious uh, virus and that he purposely lied and didn't take action uh, in order and, and as a result is responsible for all these deaths. You know, if you want to talk about outrageous or, or despicable, because that's what Joe Biden called him the other day, that's despicable. Well, I want you to hear what Nancy Pelosi said, because basically he said he lied, he's ill-equipped, it's dereliction of duty. Pelosi made it worse. Cut 25. He understood uh, better than he led on when he was calling it a hoax, his delay, distortion uh, uh, about uh, about the uh, and denial uh, about the threat. Uh, is responsible for many of the deaths and infections that we have today. You think that's a responsible statement from the speaker? Well, she's she's gone so far over the deep end. You know, she 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 criticizes President Trump for his tone. She's she's like everything that she criticizes. She is she has become. Um, you know, the 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 idea that she would accuse uh, the president of being responsible for those deaths of people is is just outrageous. You know, here's what people don't understand about this is that, you know, if the real problem here, if you really want to say talk about it, is why did all the greatest medical minds in the country exactly. not see this danger coming? Why did it take from January until March for us to re- for the medical experts to realize that this was something unlike we'd ever seen before? Because that's that, that's true. Fauci until March. No one was advising the president to shut down the economy. No one was thinking this was going to be a once-in-a-generation pathogen. It was only in mid-March that we realized this. Why is that? It's because they've been through this rodeo before. They had SARS. They had avian flu. They had Ebola. They had uh, swine flu. They had Zika. They had, they had all these you know, terrible viruses that had outbreaks, and they were able to manage them. They, they saw it as, okay, here's another one. It's a, it's a serious virus. It's a, it's a threat. But, yeah, we got through SARS. We're going to get through this. No one realized that this was the kind of virus that it, the, the, that could that could cause the kind of destruction it, it has. And so, so the idea right. – if, if Fauci didn't know, how the hell is the president supposed to know? Yeah. You know, it, it, he's not a doctor. He's not a public health expert. He's a, he's a, he's a businessman. He's a commander-in-chief. It's the medical experts who are supposed to tell him, uh, you know, how serious the outbreak is. But do you know, do you know who helps? It. You know who helps the president's story? Uh, Bob Woodward. So Bob Woodward is getting some scrutiny because they said, you have this information. The president's underreacting, giving misinformation. You should have come forward. He said, number one, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm doing a book. Number two is I looked around and Anthony Fauci wasn't doing anything different. Nobody was doing anything different than the president described. So if Fauci's not going over the top and no medical experts going over the top, what's wrong? Why should I say something? So does he does Bob Woodward know more than Anthony Fauci? Do you think that Donald Trump got that information and the scientists didn't? They were the ones that giving them that information. And at the time when they said President Xi has been transparent, he thought he was. So yeah, I don't know what – Mark, I don't know what us. you're holding back from me. Yeah, the Chinese were lying to us. And so, the, you know, he, he – President – first of all, after that meeting, um, he did, within 48 hours, President Trump had imposed a travel ban on China. So, you know, there in, in – just in that act alone – he and by the way, which Biden opposed, <laughs> in that act alone, he had uh, he had uh, you know saved thousands of lives. 
And then, yeah, he's talking to Chinese and they're saying, oh, yeah, we're on top of this. It wasn't until later that we found out, you know, because what they were doing is they were like suppressing the whistleblowers in China. The people who knew what was happening weren't speaking to the world. It was only later that we found out how they had mismanaged this, how they had lied about it, the fact that they had knew that the Chinese knew about it in mid-December that it had human-to-human transmission and didn't tell anybody. You know, the, 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 yeah. what I find amazing is that the, the, the desire to – I understand politics. I understand rough-and-tumble campaigning. But the idea that the desire to go out and blame the president for human lives being lost when really who's responsible is Xi Jinping and the Chinese communist regime. It's like they hate Trump more than they hate China. It's they true. Hate, and by it, the way, it, it, there's a chance that the, the other stories out there – and not that it really has much consequence, but I'm just curious if it ends up proving true, is that Wuhan didn't actually tell Beijing what was happening because they were afraid. So they didn't want to tell them how bad it was because yeah. they thought they were all going to be killed because that's the kind of country they have. Yeah. But then the doctor who, you know, now he's, now he's a hero of the Communist Party, but the doctor who was the whistleblower, first they, like, arrested him. Yeah, you know the 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 uh, the there was Good a point. lab in Shanghai that 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 put out the uh, DNA the uh, the uh, genome of the of the virus and the head of the lab got uh, got uh, got shut down. I mean the lab was actually closed. Um, you know, so the, the Chinese were suppressing this. They're the ones who are responsible for this. You know, it's 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 you know it's basically look the the Al Qaeda is responsible for nine eleven. Japan was responsible for Pearl Harbor and. China is responsible for this pandemic. It's just it's just that simple. And these these are simple facts that people can't that some people can't seem to realize because they hate Donald Trump so much. Mm-hmm. They want to blame him for this. He's going to come out of this fight as a because you know, he's taking a lot of heat for this like that. But you know what he's done, which which still hasn't is about to come to fruition, and he will get credit for this throughout for through history, which is that Operation Warp Speed is producing a vaccine for a novel virus faster than anyone has ever been produced in the history of of mankind. The previous record for producing a vaccine, I interviewed on my podcast, uh, uh, What the Hell is Going On? I interviewed Dr. Mansa Slawi, who's the head of Operation Warp Speed, and he walked us through what they're doing. It's unbelievable. The the previous record for producing a vaccine was five years. Land speed record for producing a vaccine for a novel virus. They're Trump launched Operation Warp Speed in March. We are gonna have at least two vaccines filing for regulatory approval in October. Mark Thiessen so with us now. Five months. Right. Mark Thiessen, our guest. So, by the way, on a side note, it looks like Bill Gates' his polio vaccine that he's giving free to Africa is causing polio. So we'll take a look at that. Keep an eye on that because everyone looks at him as some type of genius. Uh, I'm, I'm, I love what he did in computers. I don't love him in science. But I want to go over to uh, talk about how the public feels about the coronavirus. Less than half now view the coronavirus as getting worse, down from 61 percent in August, in the beginning of August. So there's a sense around the country that things are getting better. There was an all-time high in mid-July of 73 percent who said it was getting worse. Now, you already went over how Joe Biden said the president has a dereliction of duty and he was downplaying it. So last night, and the president's got to be ready for this in the debate, uh, T.J. Ducklow is uh, Joe Biden's national press secretary. He will not answer the question. Brett Baer knows that, Brett, that that he could called President Trump xenophobic for banning China. Cut 19. You're saying that Joe Biden was for closing down travel from China when the president did it? 
Uh, Joe Biden has been clear, and I can send you the fact checks if they're helpful, Brett. Joe Biden has been clear that he was not against that travel ban. But he was time. for it? Joe Biden has been clear about this, Brett. Uh, and <laughs> he got worse from there. And he, he doesn't answer the question because he has no answer. Now, if his spokesperson who rehearsed can't answer that, what is he going to say when Trump looks at him? I know there'll be social distance and they better not be on Zoom. I'm serious. And they'll be like, look at him. No, no. I know exactly what you said. Xenophobic. That's what you called me. And you said later on you kept on having your rallies and you had your debates. You had a primary in the middle of this terrible pandemic. He's going to say you had better intelligence. No, you were getting briefed. Joe Biden's been getting briefed since he's been the likely nominee. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And look, point us to the statement where he said with the, where he praised the president for shutting down travel with China. He said it was xenophobic. He accused the president of xenophobia when he did it. He was opposed to it when they shut down the European travel. And, you know, if we want to talk about records in dealing with, with uh, viruses, first of all, why was there not, you know, we had a shortage of PPE and ventilators. Why is that? Well, according to the head of the, of the, uh, of the strategic national stockpile, who was the head of it under Obama and Biden, they never replenished it after the swine flu. That's why the, 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 the strategic stockpile was empty. They used all the PPE, and they didn't. And they didn't replace the PPE. They, they, the, the Bush administration. I, I wrote President Bush's speech at the end of the administration, warning about a pandemic and setting and announcing that he was starting the national stockpile. The Bush administration launched an operation to stockpile forty thousand ventilators. You know how many ventilators the Obama administration brought uh, stockpiled under that operation? How many? Zero. Okay. Zero. They didn't do it. They, 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 the first contractor like sort of screwed up, and then they launched another contract, and it took them three years to, 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 to pick another contractor. By the time Obama left office, none of those ventilators were there. So, so, so you know, so, so turn, just turn to Biden and say, Joe, where were the ventilators? Where was the PPE? You used it up, and you didn't replace it. That's why we, were screwed, why, why well, we had these crises. Just so you know, you know, the comeback to that is, is you collapsed the pandemic agency. What he did is, what John Bolton did is folded it into the chemical, excuse me, the biological warfare yeah. division. He said yeah. it was a redundancy of jobs. So yeah. John Bolton is in the middle of that. So he's going to be the second time that Bolton's going to have to, de- going to, have to defend a president he clearly doesn't like. Lastly, 9-11, I, the more I see Bush on camera, I think he's going to get appreciated more and more the more we move away from his presidency. I know you like him a lot, too. But w- yeah. do you think I'm on to something there, or am I just cheerleading? No, you're on to something. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, he's more popular now than he is than he was than he uh, than he was uh, at any time since his presidency. Um, but you know, I mean, this is, it's just what what strikes me watching these ceremonies today, Brian, is how our country has changed. I mean, first of all, you and I, you know, bemoan the the rise of isolationism and this endless war stuff that's coming from both parties. I, I, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not for that. Yeah, yeah. We're not for that. Uh, but uh, but the other thing that has changed is I remember how much we loved the police, you know, after 9-11, how what heroes they were. The people were going to stores and buying NYPD T-shirts because they wanted to show solidarity with the police. If you put on an NYPD T-shirt today, you'd be attacked. You know, they, they, they have a, they, the city of New York. We had to have tunnel and towers put on the ceremony because it's too dangerous. To have a to, to to have a ceremony to read the names live, they're just going to send it by recording. I'm sorry, we've had 10,600 racial justice protests since the killing of George Floyd. So attack if protest to criticize and attack the police. So it's okay to have a protest to honor to attack the police, but we can't have a ceremony to honor the police officers who ran into those towers to save lives. 
It's just a freaking yeah. outrage. It is. It's, it's, you know, we should remember those people and every time, and it's, and it's a sh- it's out- outrage that they didn't want to put up the light show, that they had to be forced into that, and that private group had to come in and do it. But you know what? Let's remember the police today. The, the police officers and the, and the ran into those and buildings the and the firefighters, but the police are the ones who are under attack today. I mean, ever, let's remember all the first responders. The police officers ran into those towers to save lives, and a lot of them never came back. And to, every time you want to go out and attack the police and say defund the police, that's the people you're talking about. I get the sense that that's bottomed out. And when Al Sharpton said, who said defund the police? Those are latte liberals sitting out in the Hamptons speculating on what can help. I never said that. And I see a lot of African-Americans saying, really? I never said that. So I hope yeah. this bottomed out and, and hope people have the Mark Thiessen mindset on that. Mark, thanks so much. Love your columns. Great perspective. Thanks. Mark Thiessen, thank you. one 408 Back in a moment. Getting past all the rhetoric, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We uh, don't realistically anticipate that we would be moving to either Tier 2 or to reopening uh, K-12 schools, at least through, uh, at least until after the election. It seems to us a more realistic uh, approach to this would be to think that we're going to be where we are now until uh, we get after, until we, we are done with the election. Exactly. Uh, Los Angeles County Public Health Director. Why does she care about elections, Dr. Barbara uh, Ferreira? That people want to know when the kids can go back to school full time, when they can stop with this hybrid stuff, when they can take protocols and allow kids to have normal lives and play sports in Los Angeles, New York, and every every place else. And now we find out it's about the election, just like the president's been speculating about these liberal cities, that they might not be, have the best interest of the students and the country. They care more about politics. That is inexcusable. And I'd say the same thing if it was Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it is it is exactly what everybody thinks that the president's got ridiculed for saying. Debbie, listening in Virginia. Hey, Debbie. Hi there. I just wanted to say, you know, every time I hear Nancy Pelosi say, you know, he's respo- Trump is responsible for the deaths and because he held it, you know, uh, kept us from panicking about it. But she was sitting there inviting people to Chinatown to go out and party when it was announced. So is she not also responsible for a whole bunch of deaths because inviting people to party yeah i couldn't hear that you kind of broke up i didn't did you guys oh no did you say that again okay so i was saying that you know she well close keeps saying trump's responsible for the, the deaths because he kept it quiet he tried to keep us from panicking but then she was there inviting people to come out and party at chinatown is she not also responsible for a certain amount of deaths because she was inviting people to come out and party during a pandemic yes why not she told everyone in Chinatown when it was the most dangerous to the most virulent, uh, she should be responsible. Yes, she has a lot of funerals to go to. Uh, and, of course, what kind of example is it that she's not wearing a mask in that salon, which she denies, even though we saw it on video. She was trapped, even though the, the salon owner has nothing to do with her going there. She rents out the chair. We know that wasn't the first time she got a haircut. We've been watching her. Somebody's there's a professional there, and I have people that are professional and uh, they have told me there's no way she does that herself. 
And I don't believe that's her natural hair color. I have an investigative reporter on that. I'm going to put Eric Sean on that if I can. I can't really assign him to it, but maybe he'll do it voluntarily. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Uh, from New York and heard around the country, this is Brian Kilmeade. Okay, let's be honest. I heard around the world. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, coming up this hour, we're going to be joined by Geraldo uh, and the former governor of New York, George Pataki. It's going to be great. Uh, that's a governor that, remember, we used to think it was a natural. Uh, put, your, uh, put your ego aside, and let's do what it takes to get things done. This is 9-11. It's been 19 years since the attack, at which time it became clear that Governor Pataki and Rudy Giuliani, who I just found out today, didn't really know each other that well, didn't get along great, or, or good or bad. They just were coexisting in New York, both Republicans. And then when the 9-11 attacks happened, George Pataki had the, I guess, the security to say, all right, the mayor's in charge. He really understands terror. He understands crime. He, uh, he understands his city inside. Now I got the whole state. And remember Governor Cuomo came up with that statement that said what well, all Governor Pataki did was hold Rudy Giuliani's coat? And you just knew what type of person Governor Cuomo was, now Governor Cuomo then. I think he was Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor then, uh, after that. Now you got somebody who hates the mayor, and the mayor hates him. And guess who pays the price? New York. Guess what's not open? Almost all of New York. Guess what's dying on the vine? New York. And I'm going to add this. Even though it's a national show, something very— Something happened. Two things happened yesterday. J.P. Morgan Chase told all their people, if you can and you don't need daycare and if you're okay physically, we need you to come back to work. Nobody's back at work. I've told you I'm the only one in a suit in Manhattan. I should have a dress code for Eric and make Eric dress just because I wouldn't see if so lonely. Uh, And number two is there was a letter by 100 CEOs to Mayor de Blasio, clean up the city, stop the crime. Wow. Finally, get it away from people, politicians, and just talk reality. Back the cops, pay the sanitation workers, and I'll send my people back and we'll build up your tax base. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down... We'll hear all of us soon. That was it. Just after 9-11, 19 years later, here we're looking back. How as a nation uh, we mark this day and how as a president and Joe Biden marking this day to commemorate the attacks and the response. Where were you? What have we learned? Number two. We uh, don't realistically anticipate that we would be moving either tier two or to reopening uh, K-12 schools, at least through, uh, at least until after the election. What? The coronavirus and the economy. Can you believe what we just heard from the Los Angeles health director, the school official, about reopening schools and stores? We're going to wait for after the election day? Are you kidding? This is hurting kids in our country all about election and politics. Is this the same game plan that Cuomo's playing, that Newsom does for the entire state? They would rather hurt Trump than help us. Plus, the latest on the vaccine. 
number one. If Bob Woodward thought it was bad, then he should have immediately gone out publicly, not wait four months. You know, he's had that statement for four months, maybe five months. He's had it for a long time. It was a series of taped interviews, mostly by telephone. 2020, President, President, uh, let's talk about this race. The president takes on Joe Biden and Bob Woodward with revelations uh, from the press room and on the stage in Michigan yesterday while the former VP actually sat down for an interview and he again misremembered his past on trade. But the bigger story is what Pelosi and Schumer revealed about his agenda should he get elected. It is scary. Let's bring in Geraldo Rivera. Uh, Geraldo, I thought it was very interesting to see these crowds the president's getting. You know, with, with this hit book from his niece, hit book from Michael Cohen, hit book from Bob Woodward, uh, hit book from who knows who is coming up next, uh, Peter Strzok. Uh, they're all ranked in the top 10 with all the negativity from all the major networks and newspapers, Washington Post and New York Times. Even if you don't read them, they are the most popular. You would think he'd get four people to show up at an event. What are we? What is the disconnect between the media and the people? What, what a great question. I think the president's uh, uh, followers, his supporters are very, very loyal. They, they also, I think, have a kind of bullcrap filter. Uh, they they have heard so much that they know that a lot of it is false. How do they know? They've lived through Russia, Russia, Russia for three years. They were told their president was a traitor to the United States, a tool of Vladimir Putin, uh, that uh, the election of 2016 had been totally a creation of the communist or the, the former communist state, the, the Russian Federation. Uh, they, they've listened to the BSBS. They went through the phoniest impeachment you could possibly conceive of based on a, a lame phone call the president made to the president of Ukraine, uh, an impeachment uh, for the, the, the third or fourth time in the history of the whole republic uh, to have a president dragged down that way. So everything that happens now is, I think, Wade Bryan against the record, against the falsity of the charges that have uh, they have attempted to tar this man, and they have succeeded in totally harassing and hounding him during his whole first term in office, not to mention the spying and uh, the takedown of Michael Flynn and, and so forth. So when something happens, even something real, I think the president, looking back, wishes he had done uh, – much th- many things differently in dealing with the COVID-19. Uh, I know that he says he did everything perfectly, but I know him well enough to know that he wishes he had been more prescient. We all do. You know, hindsight is 2020. Uh, we all have 2020 hindsight. He wishes that he, I'm sure, they had acted uh, aside from the China closure, which the Democrats refused to give him credit for, and then the European closure, which even I opposed at the time. Seemed, I said it would seem premature and hasty to me. I remember clearly mistakes that I made. I, I look at, at the things that he has done right, and I applaud him for it. Right. You know, we could have used more in uh, February. Maybe there was another week or two he could have gained on this dreadful plague. But the fact of the matter is he, he, he said what he said. Woodward reported what he said. The people in that crowd in Michigan heard what he said, and they still love him because they know that the negative spin that people are putting on what, he's, what he said is weighed against what he's actually done, and he's done well, Brian. All right, true. Uh, so I want to bring you to this. Dr. Barbara Ferrer, who's the health director for the Los Angeles County School, Cut 26. We uh, don't realistically anticipate that we would be moving to either 
tier two or to reopening uh, K through 12 schools at least through, uh, at least until after the election. It seems to us a more realistic approach to this would be to think that we're going to be where we are now until uh, we get after, until we, we are done with the election. Excuse me, not a vaccine, not get our rates down to 0.1%, but after the election? Is she saying out loud what President Trump has been saying out loud and getting ridiculed for, that this is about pure politics and kids and everybody listening right now are paying the price? We can't go back to our jobs. You can't go back to school. You can't play sports because my mayor's a Democrat. I think that the... The rabid, as in rabid dog nature of American politics is shameful. And I believe that the Democrats will do anything, use any means necessary to defeat Donald Trump. They will lie, cheat, and steal. Did you see the interview with the uh, the Biden press guy yesterday when Brett Baer asked him, I thought, very – uh, matter of fact, very politely, whether Joe Biden had used a teleprompter to answer some yeah, of the questions. Let, let's let the, the audience hear it, Geraldo. Let's hear it. Okay. Cut 11. Has Joe Biden ever used a teleprompter during local interviews or to answer Q&A with supporters? Brett, we are not going to engage. This is, this is straight from the Trump campaign. Well, yeah, they're points. using and, it. And what it does, and what it does, Brett, is it's trying to distract the American people. I'm just, from, they're from, using from it. They the talk pand- about it every day. Can you what, say yes or no? That's because they talk about it every day, Brett, because they don't have a coherent uh, Well, you strategy. have an answer. Yes or no? Brett, they talk about it every day because they don't have a coherent argument for why Donald Trump deserves re-election, deserves four more years. We know that he lied to the American people. We know that he has not uh, shown leadership during this crisis, and they are desperate to throw anything they can against the wall to try to distract from that fact. And it went on, and he never answered the question, which shows you he did. In fact, we have that cut of Joe Biden searching uh, for that prompter. But what, what is your take on that? Brett was very fair. And he was on Tim Murtaugh, too, of the Trump campaign on other things. But you need to be pressed. I look past the squirming of the of the flack there and I look to the substance of the question and the issue. Uh, it, It is clear that the former vice president is using teleprompters to answer questions. Using teleprompters, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You see them, those little square, uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, opaque, uh, they they actually see through. They're genius the way they operate. So the audience, they look like a gray square, like an iPad, and from the speaker you can actually see the writing, and that's the teleprompter. Uh, You know, they, they are often used, and in rallies and so forth, but to use them in an interview in a way that is uh, surreptitious, in a way that is uh, uh, underhanded in, in the sense that uh, it appears the, to the audience that, the, uh, that, that Joe Biden is answering a question that has been – the answer has been scripted. The question has been preplanned and planted. It is, it's the height of dishonesty. It also, I think, uh, you know, harkens to the debates – coming up starting September 29th here in Cleveland. How is Joe Biden going to be able to answer questions? I I know that he has memorized five or six responses to things, but against Chris Matthews, that memorization is not going to fly. He's going to have to think on his feet and respond in in a way that is sharp and cohesive and lucid. Uh, President Trump demonstrated again last night at that rally in Michigan uh, that uh, he's he's very clever. Uh, He's a 
he's, he's charismatic. He, 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 however you you feel about him politically, he's got a flamboyant popularity and magnetism that I think the vice president does not. And uh, if if I as I expect, Chris asks them both tough questions with even tougher follow-ups. I think it'll be to the vice right. president's disadvantage. Brian. And just so you know, Mike McCormick, who is his stenographer of the White House, and, you know he is pro-Trump. He says that the Joe Biden that he was dealing with during the White House has lost a step. He doesn't seem to have the same mental acuity he had even four years ago. And what we're going to see, too, is President Trump, I know he, he's instinctive and he won, he won a lot of those debates. I get it. But he can't just say you're against fracking. And Joe Biden says, no, I told, said three weeks ago, I'm for fracking. He's got to say, uh, six months ago, you told Dana Bash this. Before, 11 months ago, you said this. And then you also said fossil, you told a young girl fossil fuels will be gone if you get into the White House. So I don't care what you said three weeks ago. We already know what you're going to do. It's got to be he has to have a little bit of preparation to it. And then after, if he can, the president can tie for 20 minutes, he wins the rest because you watch Biden visibly fade on stage. He's, he's you know, it, it's funny. I, I saw that uh, Britt Hume just got his contract renewed. For yeah, I was against years. that. I'm an anti-Britt <laughs> Hume guy from day one. <laughs> I saw you picketing. Yes. Uh, but uh, I saw that uh, Britt is a month older than I am. So that means he is seven months younger than yeah, he's yeah. seven months younger than Joe Biden. I'm eight months younger than Joe Biden. But I, I think both Britt and I uh, have we, – we still have kind of a snap uh, in, in our, in our sure. brains. Uh, the, the, the engine still fires on all the, all the cylinders. I, I hate to say this about Joe Biden because I'm sure he's a decent guy. But when he, for instance, when he is confronted by questions about his son Hunter – and I know we all – you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. I'm a father of five. I understand how defensive I get when anyone questions anything my children have done. When they bring up Hunter and uh, where's Hunter and, uh, and the, the money that Hunter received, I think Joe Biden is going to be in a very – it's a fluster-creating uh, conundrum. I, I'm sure that the, the president will exploit that. Right away. And, and, and on the but on the other hand, as we're seeing with the Bob Woodward book, my God, you can't have more credible, uh, you know, allegations or uh, uh, controversial issues than, uh, than than Woodward has uncovered with the tape and everything else. But you're going to see how he easily uh, slips away. He's like uh, he rope a dopes for a while and then he's out. Then he's jabbing again. And he, you know, it's uh, I don't think uh, Biden has that kind of. Uh, uh, you know, faculty. I don't. I don't think Biden has that gotcha. kind of uh, nimbleness. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Hey, uh, watch Geraldo's special on Fox Nation this weekend. Uh, it is really excellent, and it just also reminds me of all the different stories that we've been through, even together. Let alone what you did before you met me. A lot of people think I helped your career, uh, and really, I'm responsible for your success. And I go, no, he was doing something before he got here. I just didn't know what. Uh, so it's all interesting. We all come from the same place, you know, within five miles of each other. And so <laughs> You're just a lot cooler with a better body. Uh, Geraldo, <laughs> thanks. Anyway. Thanks so much, Geraldo. All right, buddy. 1-866-408-7669. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. 19 years ago on this day, at this very hour on this field, 40 brave men and women triumphed over terror and gave their lives in defense of our nation. Their names and their stories are forever inscribed on the eternal roll call of American heroes. Today we pay tribute to their sacrifice and we mourn deeply for the nearly 3,000 precious and beautiful souls who were taken from us on September 11th. 2001. That's a little of the president's remarks that are still going now, a tribute to those who lost their lives on Flight 93. Mark Milley also spoke, I believe, at the Pentagon, and he's Secretary of the Army, and, and he had a great, uh, a great line that we don't think enough about. What happened after 9-11? And they said over 6,000 Americans have lost their lives directly due to what happened on, uh, on Flight 93, on what happened to the, what was the Twin Towers, and in the Pentagon. Matt, listening in Arizona. Hey, Matt. Morning, sir. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? I'm sorry this is coming in so late. I've been trying to call in. No problem. I just thought you'd like to hear the virus had hit our country in mid-October. And I'll tell you how I know that. We had products that come out of either Thailand or China. We're building the solar field. We had problems with shipping. About mid-October, maybe around the 17th or so, guys started getting sick between 8 to 11 days. They averaged about 9. All of the symptoms that COVID was causing is what my guys were going through. And I lost 13 guys between October and right around Christmas. About mid-November, we couldn't get supplies in at all. There's a certain liquid that we use for our batteries for safety reasons. It comes out of Thailand. Couldn't get it, period paid for it, paid an extra $3 million to have it shipped, never got it. Come to find out Customs had all of our stuff on hold because it was reading some, I mean, I'm not a doctor, some weird thing it was reading on their scanners. And then March 13th or 12th, 13th, when the president shut down travel, I'm pretty 90% sure we were the first industry to even get closed that day we were shut down and we haven't heard anything since. Hey, Matt, you know, there's something going on because how the hell does New York get blasted the way we got blasted while all eyes are on the West Coast and we're looking at China and we're trying to figure out if it's going to come here. And we got no cases. New York was infected. And as soon as we look west, they we look over and we say, wait a second. The Europeans have been coming here. The Chinese have been coming here. But why are we getting hit so bad? And some people say with a somewhat more virulent strand. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Information you want, truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. To the family members of Flight 93, Today, every heartbeat in America is wedded to yours. Your pain and anguish is the shared grief of our whole nation. The memory of 
your treasured loved ones will inspire America for all time to come. The heroes of Flight 93 are an everlasting reminder that no matter the danger, no matter the threat, no matter the odds, America will always rise up, stand tall, and fight back. Uh, that's the message the president has today in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, the site where Fight 93 crashed into the ground and didn't hit the Capitol. Some have speculated it was going to hit the White House, one or the other. That's where it was heading. It was successful to hit the Pentagon, sadly, and both towers, unbelievably, they both fell. And now we found out later even the terrorists were surprised at that. It's been 19 years uh, to the day since those attacks took place, and commemorations are happening around the country. And uh, and next year will be a big one because you really have to mark that day at 20. I cannot believe 20 years. With me right now is Shannon Bream. Shannon, where were you 19 years ago? You know what? I was actually packing to move, and I was I had the TV on at the house when I was doing all this stuff. My best friend called me. She was very pregnant, and she said, hey, can you go with me to my doctor's appointment? It's just kind of a crazy day. And I went there with her. She went in, and the doctor came out and said to me, did you bring her here? And I said, yeah. He said, you have to go to the hospital right now. She's having this baby. And we went to the hospital, and it was full. And they said, listen, this is in Florida. They said, this happens when we have hurricanes or big emotional events. Our labor and delivery unit fills up. There was no space for her to have the baby. She was in a room with a bunch of other women, um, and uh, her husband wasn't there. And so I kind of turned into her advocate to try to – find a place for her to have the baby. They, they put her into uh, an operating room and uh, Megan Hope, our granddaughter, or not granddaughter, my goddaughter was born that day. So I remember the fear and the pain and how terrified everybody was. But I also have this beautiful memory of Megan who turns 19 today um, coming into the world that day. Wow. Uh, and professionally, how long after that did you come to Fox? Oh, gosh, it was several years, probably six or seven years later. So I was moving from Florida to Charlotte to take a job in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I wasn't in the D.C. or New York area when this happened. And and when I moved here to hear people's firsthand accounts of being um, at the Pentagon or being in New York and living through it, just a totally different experience for you guys to be in the middle of the story and to, um, you know, be in the middle of the place that probably felt exceptionally dangerous that day and to lose people that you knew um, and to watch it happen. Um, I'm just so moved by the stories of, of people who are even closer to it and to watch your city under attack. I can't imagine how that must have felt. Yeah, but it was amazing, though, too. I was just saying the difference between the pandemic and this attack uh, with the pandemic, the city's still flat on its back. I mean, no one's working. There's nobody here. Back then, people kept working, and it was not long before Wall Street was reopened. And then next thing you know, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't believe the determination and the workers to clean up downtown. It took a while to rebuild, and politics plays a role. But it was much easier. We knew who the enemy was. We knew exactly what to do, and we knew how to get the economy going. Of course, it it was a lot—we knew it. We just—it was just hard to do it. Now it's uh, been a lot harder. But I want you to hear—John Scott just was so brilliant— and here is John Scott on that day with the both towers burning. Cut 29. All we can do is stare aghast at these pictures at this point. You are looking at the uh, north building of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in Manhattan. These are coming to you live now. Debris raining down from 110 floors up. As you can see, this is a clear blue sky day in Manhattan. If this was an accident, 
it would be a needle in a haystack kind of accident. There was another one. We just saw, we just saw another one. We just saw another one apparently go, another plane just flew into the second tower. This raises, this has to be deliberate, folks. We just saw on live television as a second plane flew into the second tower of the World Trade Center. And it didn't take long for him to say it's got to be bin Laden. You know, he blew up the embassy. Uh, you know, he, uh, we targeted him back uh, after that, and uh, he hit the coal. At least his followers did. And we know everything has changed since. And it's not a coincidence. I don't think 19 years later we're going to announce a troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. And then we announced one yesterday about a troop withdrawal from Iraq. So, man, things have changed. Yeah, and it's it's um, for those of us who remember that day, all of us so well, who were adults and, and glued to our TVs or busy working through this thing, um, it seems in some ways like it was yesterday and others – that it's been a lifetime ago, because I do remember what you said about how quickly things were up and running. People were determined mm-hmm. to kind of, um, you know, raise their fist at this and say, we're going to get back to work. We're going to rebuild the city. We're going to show up. We're not afraid and we're united. Um, I think about the lawmakers who gathered on Capitol Hill um, to get together and sing on the steps of the Capitol. And you think you hate that it takes something like that to break down a lot of our barriers and to help us to think about what's good for the country as a whole. Um, and that was kind of a silver lining to that, at least briefly, that people felt united in defending America um, against um, enemies that we could all agree were terrible people. <laughs> and, yeah. and we could be united in that. And it's it's hard to see where we are 19 years later, so fractured over so many things. Um, but what a beautiful, inspiring thing it was to watch the people right. in New York pull back together and say, um, we're not going to be taken down by this. Yeah, hopefully after the election, there'll be more of a, of a sense that we got to start pulling together again. But until then, we'll cover it all. Shannon Bream tonight, uh, Fox News at night. Um, it's going to be a great show on a Friday because you'll have this to talk about. And who knows what both campaigns will give you. We will see you at 11. Great. Uh, thanks so much. Shannon Bream, when we come back. The man who was governor of New York at this time and did such a vital, underappreciated job uh, bringing us through that tough time in our period. He was a two-term governor of New York. George Pataki joins us live to reflect back on 9-11 19 years later. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From his mouth to to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. This is uh, a vicious attack upon New York. It's an attack upon America. It's an attack upon the whole concept of freedom and our way of life. Uh, And we cannot let these attacks succeed. Uh, First step has to be to make sure we do everything in our power to protect the people and to save the lives of those whose lives are still at risk and to help those who have been injured. That is uh, Governor Pataki on on 9-11, 19 years ago. And he, of course, two-term governor of New York and joins us now. Governor Pataki, 19 years later, um, what are your thoughts today? You know, Brian, uh, it's always a, a tough day, I think, for everyone. But I, I just have an overwhelming sense of loss. So you feel the sorrow when your day 
as I have been all morning at ground zero, um, and just anger at what happened. Uh, but then when you look around, you also can't help but have a sense of pride because uh, New Yorkers and Americans came together and responded with courage uh, and character that had allowed us to not just rebuild Ground Zero, but to regain confidence in America and our freedom. So um, are you surprised that the 9-11 Museum people did not okay the reading of the names and it took the tower, uh, the tunnel to towers? Uh, Frank Siller, in order to do that? Well, I think Frank Siller has done a lot of good things with Tunnels to Towers, and ultimately it turned out fine. Uh, the ceremony did have the names read. They were read uh, electronically as opposed to in person, and given the extraordinary uh, conditions of the COVID virus, uh, that certainly makes sense. But uh, the more uh, attention people pay to the lesson of September 11th, and I fear it gets lost, the better it is from my standpoint. And having towers, tunnel to towers, and the memorial at the at the memorial plaza itself, I think, uh, mm-hmm. is an appropriate tribute to the heroes we lost. So it's I know it's surreal, but 19 years ago, if you came to New York, you wanted NYPD shirt and hat, you know, FDNY shirt and hat. You wanted pictures with cops. Now they're vilified. A billion dollars cut out of the budget. The anti-crime unit is driven into the ground, is just dispersed. The academy's been put on hold. And it's not money, it's a sentiment. How did this, how did this happen, Governor? You're watching from the outside. You used to be on the inside. Can you believe this? I, I find it hard to believe. Brian, it's utterly crazy. Uh, and, you know, I saw a lot of the uh, NYPD people at Ground Zero this morning. And I went up and shook their hands and thanked them, which we all should do, because they're, they're just great people and very courageous people. But the radical left has captured the government of too many of our American cities. Uh, I mean, the idea of taking a billion dollars out of the police in New York when we see this horrific uh, spike in crime is nothing short of insanity. The idea that police officers in Portland and Seattle are assaulted every single day and the government doesn't stand up for them is criminal. Uh, you know, the, one of the lessons, one of the important lessons of September 11th is our heroes are really people like our police officers, our firefighters, our EMTs, those who put their lives on the line to protect us and respond in a crisis. Uh, and that lesson, sadly, in too many of these states, at least at the at the political leadership of the far left, uh, that those lessons have been forgotten. Rochester, New York, the police chief resigns. People come from the outside, start wrecking that wonderful city, uh, small town city in New York, very respected, great college there. And they're destroying it because of a, a police incident that's still being investigated. You know, it's just uh, I don't think the people are interested in, in justice or investigating that incident. They're, incident. they're interested in creating chaos and bringing America to its knees so that they can impose this leftist right. view uh, of what government should be. It's not what the American people want. It's not what our cities like Rochester need. And uh, we need politicians who are courageous enough to say, look, you're out of your minds. We need the police. We need the police to be able to protect us. Without our p- personal security, we have no freedom. Uh, and sadly, at the, the mayor level and too often at the state level, we just don't see that happening. So with me right now is the former governor of New York uh, who uh, Governor Pataki was there on 9-11. Of course, he was in charge of the state on that day. But the man in charge of the city was Rudy Giuliani. 
And now as I watch the hatred between Mayor de Blasio and the governor, and they're from the same party, I have more appreciation for someone like you and Rudy who said, you know, I I don't, you know, you guys weren't best friends. You weren't enemies at all. But we got to come together at the same side. Who cares who gets the credit? We have to serve the country and New York. And I asked that to Rudy Giuliani a couple hours ago. I got to tell you, George is, uh, man, I love George, and we were close, but not that close. And from then on, we're like brothers. I mean, we lived together for two months. We had all our staff meet, and we did something really extraordinary. I'd have a staff meeting every morning in New York, and he'd have one in Albany. He brought a staff meeting from Albany down to New York. And every day, we put our staffs together. And we did it for a very simple reason. We knew that we could make decisions quickly and in the best interest. But then, look, our staffs are going to fight. <laughs> they always do. So George and I said, our staffs are going to be together. We're mm-hmm. going to walk out of the room with one decision. And frankly, the reason George, to the extent he did defer to me, did, is because the mayor knows the city much better than the governor. The governor knows the whole state. Mm-hmm. But he's not. he can't know exactly the resources we have in Far Rockaway or Staten Island or the upper part of the Bronx. Or, he, he, he wouldn't have known the 135 major targets And also, I particularly had a background as a prosecutor of terrorism. And Bernie Kerrick had a background as an investigator of terrorism. So we were in an area of strength as opposed to something like the pandemic where nobody knew anything. Is that how you remember it? Absolutely. You know, Brian, I think uh, the decision I made that afternoon, and Rudy talked about it there, uh, he set up a temporary command center with his commissioners and an old police academy. And he called me, said they were there. And I thought for a minute, and I said, I'll be down, and I'll bring my whole team. And we were in the same room at the same table day after day after day, night and day. Not just Rudy and myself, but all of our commissioners so that we never missed a beat. And it didn't matter if Rudy was a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or conservative. He was the mayor. didn't matter if I was a Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. I was the governor. We had an obligation to put politics aside and simply do what was right for the people. And I'm proud that uh, both the city and the state, we never missed a beat. We never had a miscommunication or lack of coordination. And you contrast that today in the COVID crisis where the mayor and the governor don't even talk. And it seems like the mayor will say X in the morning and the governor will say the opposite in the afternoon. And you wonder if it's just one upsmanship as opposed to actually acting for what's right for the people of the city and the state. you got to put that aside. We still have a crisis today, the COVID crisis, and it's creating an enormous economic uh, crisis in New York. And they're not cooperating, and that's just hard to excuse. And, of course, all those uh, all the eateries shut down. They said they're not going to open up. It's only for upper-class and middle-class people. It makes no sense. And they're not going to open up. The next day, the governor opens up, doesn't tell the mayor. He scrambles for communication. But Governor Cuomo gave us a clue what he was going to be like as a governor. So when he's running for the office, he says this about you. There was one leader on 9-11. It was Rudy Giuliani. It defined George Pataki. It defined George Pataki as not being a leader. He stood behind the leader. He held the leader's coat. He was a great assistant to the leader. He was not a leader. What a classless thing to say. He was roasted for doing it. But doesn't it indicate what an egomaniac we have today? Well, he was running against me at the time. Uh, and the reaction to that comment was so horrific, he actually had to drop out of the race. And, and you know, I think leadership is very different. It's not being in front of the cameras and screaming exactly. and uh, letting everybody know you're the boss. 
It's doing what's right. And sometimes, yes, that requires you to overrule everybody else. But leadership is best done by consensus, working with other levels of government, working with people, uh, communicating with those people as opposed to dictating. And uh, unfortunately, that communication, that coordination and cooperation is lacking today. And, you know, it's a different style of leadership. I'm not so sure it qualifies as leadership. Governor, when is the Republican Party going to make a real run at the mayor or, or the gubern- or the governor's house again, governor's mansion? You know, uh, New York is an overwhelmingly Democratic state, but I showed that with the right ideas and the right approach, uh, you can win. Uh, and that's always the case. You know, uh, no one is guaranteed re-election. And uh, I'm hopeful that the party will reach out, find the right people, run them for the right positions. And, you know, one of the reasons New York City is hurting so much really desperately right now is it's a one-party city. Yep. Uh, and one-party government doesn't work. You, when you have the one party with no checks and balance, the extremes govern. And that's the case in the city. And sadly, it's become the case in Albany as well. So having a vibrant two-party system is critical to prevent uh, the far left from running the city and the state into the ground. And hopefully the Republicans will come together and help achieve that. And we're national. And hopefully people in Illinois are hearing that and people in California are hearing that uh, because the week uh, of of being of apologizing for this country's founding, allowing statutes to be written down, allowing cops to be abused, uh, cutting the budget. All it does is get less cops, less pride and more anarchy. And that's basically what Democrats have done. Hopefully sober Americans are seeing this. And, Governor, I think the more we move away from 9-11 and next year will be a bigger year at 20, the more people are going to appreciate your egoless leadership during a time of need. And, uh, Governor Pataki, thanks so much. Well, thank you, Brian. Always good being on with you. Take right. care. Great. Uh, Governor George Pataki. I mean, just compare it to what we have now. Compare it. They're trying to score points on the president. They're trying to fight with their mayors. No one's talking about business people. No one's talking about law enforcement. No one's talking about quality of life to the point where 100 CEOs write a letter to the mayor of New York saying, pick up the garbage, crack down on crime, or we're not coming back. Do you believe that? He should be begging them to come back. But that's exactly what's going on. And I'm sure it's happening in Chicago and maybe Raleigh. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's a special day, a day in which we uh, take a, a deep breath and look back at 19 years ago since the 9-11 attacks. Bottom of the hour, we get up close and personal. What it was like being on the president's side during that time with the great Dana Perino. She's got the daily briefing coming up at 2 o'clock Eastern time today in the 5 at 5. Uh, but first things first, uh, we have an interview with Frank Siller, whose brother Stephen Siller died when he ran through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel with 60 pounds of equipment on his back, went into a tower that he would not come back from. Uh, and because of that, they, they formed the, the foundation Tunnels to Towers, which you hear me talk about all the time. Uh, and Frank will be with us shortly. Uh, in fact, in a matter of moments, just to start and to ground you again, here's uh, then-President Bush, 43, shocked like everybody else, nine months into his first term, when thinking he's going to be the education president, was actually speaking at a school and talking about the curriculum, when word would come to him that we're under attack. On the 14th, he'd go down to what we then called Ground Zero, where the towers once stood, and said this. 
The nation sends its love and compassion. God bless America! To everybody who is here. Thank you for your hard work. Thank you for making the nation proud. And may God bless America. And that was uh, in the rubble that was left of the Twin Towers. That was President Bush, 43, obviously, on 9-11, 19 years ago. Uh, in 19 years, plus a few weeks, because it was a couple of weeks after. Uh, there was uh, a couple of days after. That was George Bush. And we have to, as we come up to 9-11, and we're here today, looking at 9-11 19 years ago, you think about that moment, it brings us right back. But what about if you lost your brother in that moment, in that when those towers collapsed? What do you think about? Well, let's bring in Frank Siller. He's chairman and CEO of the Stephen Siller Tunnel to Towers Foundation that does an incredible job, not just remembering those who are 9-11 and suffering, but everybody uh, who fights and who serves as a first responder in every way. Uh, the Stephen Siller Foundation has been that type of success, that type of interest, and that type of impact. Frank Siller, welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thank you, Brian, for having me on this, one of the most important days in American's history. And for my family, is a day that we lost our little brother. And, uh, but we're always going to make sure that we honor him in, in the proper way. How much younger is he than you? Excuse me, sir? How much younger is Stephen than you? Stephen Stephen was 14 years younger than me, but 25 years younger than my my oldest brother, Russ, who just recently passed away, God rest his soul. But uh, when he was born, my my parents were – my father was almost 50. My mother was almost 45. So he was a little miracle, a little gift from God. And they died when he was a little boy, so we raised him. He was like our – he was not only a brother to us. He was was like a son to us, and it was tremendous loss for the family uh, when he he gave his life. But look – what he did, you know, strapping 60 pounds of fire gear on his back and running through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, which is almost two miles long, as you would know, and uh, getting uh, running into the South Tower and giving up his life, you know, leaving behind his wife and five kids, he inspired his older siblings to uh, to be better people and to do good and, and to make sure that we honored the sacrifice of 9-11, for sure, uh, but also to be there for our first responders and our military, you know, thereafter. And that's what we've been doing for the last 19 years. So besides Frank and older and wiser, how did it change you? How, I mean, how would the Frank, would the Frank Siller I knew in 2000 remind me of the Frank Siller I know in, in 2020? Well, similar in some ways. Um, I had my own business and um, I was a bit of an entrepreneur, And uh, but I had parents that were very uh, spiritual. We grew up in a very uh, Catholic family, and uh, my parents always taught us to do for other people. My father and mother both set great examples for a sacrifice to do for others. So we were taught at an early age that you're not here just to take care of yourself. You're here to take care and serve others. So, And obviously they sent a good message because that's what my brother uh, Stephen did. Uh, you know, he made the ultimate sacrifice. So um, and he only knew my parents. You know, my father died when he was eight and a half. And my mother when he was ten. So, but they made a profound impact in, in his life. And uh, so, uh, similar in some ways, but uh, but different in as I've dedicated as well as my brothers and sisters and many other people have joined us on this uh, journey to dedicate uh, the time I have left on this earth to make sure that we take care of the greatest of all Americans, those who are willing to die every day for you and I, let it be first responders or uh, or uh, men and women in, in uniform. And 
Um, I can't say my brother would be very proud of where we are today, but he is our inspiration for sure. Yeah, he is. And your organization and those spots that you run on our channel, they're like mini documentaries and they just tell a great story because it comes from the heart because you you have to take care and pay off the mortgages. You decide to use it to pay off the mortgages of those who lose loved ones uh, serving this country or the best you can, first responders who who die helping out uh the helping out whoever was in need. So Frank, with the Stephen Siller's name lives on in Tunnel for Towers. It, it's a if I say that to somebody in Wisconsin, they'll know it. If I say someone in Los Angeles, they'll understand it. So this year, you were asked to do something special on 9/11 because with this pandemic, it looked like they weren't going to read the names for the first time since the since the attack. What did you guys do? Well, we we said, and I called them up, and I gave them an opportunity to work with us and for us to help them uh, figure out how to do it in a safe way, and they declined. And so we said, well, we know it could be done in a safe way, so we are doing it. We're going to make sure we read all 2,977 names who perished 19 years ago today. And we're also going to make sure that uh, that those lights are shining. Uh, they weren't originally going to do the tribute lights, but they reversed course on that. Uh, but we uh, were doing it. So instead, we are for the first time ever doing the tribute lights, but we're calling tower lights in uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where Flight 93 went down. Uh, you remember Todd Beamer's famous last words, let's roll. Um, and uh, so we're going to have the lights there on the um, last night. We did it. And uh, and also at the Pentagon, uh, we have the lights there also. So for the first time ever, where Flight 77 went into the Pentagon and such tr- tr- tremendous uh, loss of life. So out of that ridiculous decision that they made and shame on them, because the 9-11 Memorial Museum, the one job, most important job should be to honor 9-11, the day of 9-11. Of course. Of course. And for them to not do this is just it's just so outrageous. It's just so outrageous. But you know what? Tunnel to Towers Foundation, you know all the work we do, Brian. You see it firsthand. I do. These great families we have. But our first responsibility will always be to honor 9-11, the day of 9-11, that we read those names out loud in person on that day, on this day, every year to make sure that people don't forget. And uh, that's what we're going to do. If they ever not read the names again, we will be there forever, and we'll always have those lights shining in the, in the Pentagon and uh, most certainly in Shanksville. Now, it's just we'll emblematic how this city just knuckled under, keep everything closed, close your gyms, close your restaurants, don't come to work, and the city's on its knees waiting for a bailout. And then when they said this on 9-11, I said, that's the final blow. But unlike most people, uh, you just say, okay, that's my call to action. So the Stephen Siller Foundation calls to action, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation called to action to help out and remember, which is the most important thing. Uh, so number one, so it doesn't happen again, so people understand the need to continue to push back against Islamic extremists because they can't wait to get another shot at us. Uh, and the, and we have to keep our hands up in every way for that. I hope we don't forget that. Ray Kelly never forgot it. Bloomberg and Rudy never forgot it. I worry about these people uh, that they forgot it. And I know that's probably the buzz. But when the families get together all these years later, can you tell us what you talk about and what is it like seeing each other? Happy to know each other, but sad while you're there, right? Yes, absolutely. Look, we share uh, we share stories of where our families are. Look, uh, well, I was f- uh, 48 
uh, you know, 19 years ago. I'm 67. I have three beautiful children. I have six grandchildren. You know, things change. But my grandchildren all know about 9-11. They all, you know, know about what their uh, Uncle Steve uh, did, you know, my brother. Uh, they all, you know, live it, you know, in, in, in so many different ways. And they come to the run. You know, we had the run every year in New York City, which we're not doing this year because you can't have 40,000 people run through a tunnel. But that being said, um, we it's beautiful talking to the 9-11 families and see uh, that, that's why it's important, Brian, to read the names out loud. Yep. I had one. I had one firefighter. His name was Mike Henry. His, his, he lost his brother, Joseph Henry. Uh, on 9/11, his his uncle was a firefighter. His father's a firefighter. His grandfather's a firefighter. This is a family of firefighters who know how to sacrifice. He said his name. He was so upset. He said, "Frank, my niece was supposed to read this year." And I said, "Hey, Mike, don't worry. Your niece is going to read Joe's, your brother Joe's name, because we got it. The Tunnel Towers Foundation. We will make sure we read these names for sure. And you can do things in a safe way. It's it was all bogus. It's all bogus. It's ridiculous because um, we found we did it and uh, we're doing it in a very safe way." Where it's um, where we we recognize there is an illness out there, there is a disease out there, but come on, you could still live your life. And you know what? My brother didn't. He he would figure out how to get there. He figured out how to get there on 9/11, and give up his life. We could figure out how to read names in in a safe way. Shame on us if we didn't do it. But anyway, like I said, our first responsibility is to make sure that we honor that day, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, and hopefully this is the last time it's even challenged. So. Uh, to live that day. I remember I was on the air that day. I remember uh, I was actually, there was no radio show back then, but right afterwards, I got a crew and worked our way down. And as soon as they got close, uh, somebody else lost their crew and they took it from Den- uh, David Lee Miller had to take my crew. So I watched it there. And as we're driving down, I remember stopping. First, my shooter said, hey, we need to tape this. So I taped it because the, fu- the towers were burning and then they fell. About 20 blocks ahead of me was Rick Leventhal. He was live on the air. Frank, this is how it sounded. Oh, my God. It's been a huge explosion. Everyone's running in the other direction. We're on, we're on Church Street. We're not sure what happened. There's been a huge explosion. Everyone's running for their lives, literally. Police, media. I see a woman pushing a baby carriage. Here comes the smoke. Here comes the smoke. I think we better get out of this mess, dude. I think we better get out of this. And he went into he went into the truck. That was the first tower. Here's the next. That's the south. That was 959. Yeah. 959? That's when I lost my brother. Um, when that tower went down, I turned to my mother-in-law, Nancy, and I said, Nancy, I think I just lost my brother because I knew he would find a way of getting there. And uh, my heart dropped, and, you know, we spent the rest of the day with my brothers and sisters. We all came over to my house and went over to my sister-in-law's house. And it was the beginning of really trying to find out what happened to him. But uh, we never recovered. We never recovered Stephen's body, but we know his soul rests there. And that's why, God rest my soul. I will tell you that we will be there every year to remember those who perished that day. There was too many acts. It was one of the it was one of the worst days in, in American history. But it was one of the most beautiful days, and so many acts of heroism. 
my God, think of the people like even my brother, but there's so many other firefighters and cops and regular people like Wells Crowther from the guy in the red bandana. I mean, that was saving lives that day. There was Captain Billy Burke who stayed in the stairwell of the North Tower after knowing the South Tower fell, told his firefighter brothers, you go ahead, I'll be right behind you. They're the exact words you said, I'll be right behind you, but stayed in the stairwell with, with somebody who was an invalid, was in a wheelchair, and he stayed there and died with that person and died with that person. Those stories have to be told. Our next generation has to know what happened 19 years ago and going forward for sure. And uh, and we're going to be our first mission to tell the Talos Foundation, make sure those stories are told, and we will never rest ever. To, uh, for our main mission, which is to never forget. Right, and the Tonfa Towers have never been bigger and more important, and that's a lot. I know you don't want to give yourself any credit, but you deserve a ton of it because you tell the stories, you reach out to the families, whether it's out in California or in the middle of Texas, you let them know the best you can. If people can support Tunnel to Towers, you can support these families and pay off their mortgages. It's been a brutal year for charities. You can't do the runs. You can't do the golf tournaments. You can't do the fundraisers. You can't do the auctions. So for those who are saying, yeah, I'm wondering why I wasn't invited or I forgot to contribute, contribute today. Uh, tunnel for Towers. You could also sign up every month so you feel, you know, whatever you can afford, $10, $20, you don't have to worry about it. It automatically comes out and just know every month you're doing something good to help great people like Frank. Frank, thanks yeah. so much for your time and thanks for taking action when the city did. Go can ahead. I please give a special shout out to the DNLO family, Dan and Gail, who just took 50 names off the waiting list today. 50 names, a tremendous donation they made. We count on the $11 a month, but to get something like this, it really moved our spirit in a special way because we know we're going to be able to help 50 more families because of their great contribution. Wow, that's fantastic. And they're paying off their mortgages. That's what you meant, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Frank, thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. God bless. All right. God bless America. All right. You got it. Uh, This is 9-11, 19 years later. Brian Kilmeade Show. You're with Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk to Dana Perino about what it was like being on George W. Bush's side uh, during 9-11 and afterwards. I am special thanks to Frank Siller for joining us earlier. He would be coordinating the reading of all the names for the families of those who lost their lives on 9-11. And really, how many people have lost their lives after uh, fighting because of it? Uh, Tim is in Albany, New York, right in the state's capital. Hey, Tim. Hi, Brian. I listen to you on Talk 1300 in the Capital District area. And, boy, I'll tell you, God bless Frank Stiller for keeping the lights on for 9-11. He is a great patriot and what a great brother, too. But also, you know, you mentioned about how the terrorists are always out there. They love these anniversaries for their evil. I always have a lump in my throat on days like this. And we have no better proof than 2012, September 11th, in Benghazi. You know, four great Americans helped avert a real bloodbath that day, and we should say their names today. Ambassador Chris Stevens, Sean Smith, Tyrone Woods, Glenn Doherty. You know, they go on this list of great Americans who, uh, you know, saved lives with their valiant efforts on that day in 2012. So they belong in the honor roll today also. Go get them, Tim. Thanks so much. Rick, College Station, Pennsylvania. Rick. 
Hello. Rick, what's on your mind? Hey, listen, House Speaker, there we go. Hi. Um, we keep hearing them talk about Cuomo and this European virus, but I don't hear any facts and data, so I looked it up. It's real difficult on Google because they don't want you to know. But here for everyone is the facts about the European virus and New York. On November, uh, March 9th, March 9th, there's an article. This is when Italy and Spain was on fire with virus. And Italy, the entire nation, was in quarantine. Yet, there were 15 to 20 daily flights from Milan to New York. This garbage that Cuomo didn't know was a bunch of garbage. No one was looking at China because we were not getting data from China. The data was in Italy and Spain. And I remember New Yorkers complaining that they were in shutdown. They were starting to shut down New York, but the airports were wide open. And I got on the uh, flight travel apps and looked it up. I saw all the flights coming from uh, Britain, Germany, Italy, Spain, into New York in the midst of this. Very interesting. Good point, Derek. I, I actually sense that it got here before March, though. I really do. I think it fomented for a while. It spreads because it was so tightly condensed. But there are other cities that are tightly packed, too. But we got hit like nobody else, and then we took the longest to recover. But now we have recovered, and Cuomo's taking full credit. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people... And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. A few days after 9-11, that was President of the United States. Uh, in a members-only jacket, I think, sitting there in what was once the World Trade Center uh, addressing... Uh, in the rubble, a bunch of hardworking first responders. Dana Perino with us now, host of the Daily Briefing, which starts at 2 o'clock and the 5, uh, obviously starts at 5 o'clock. Dana, welcome back. Hi, how are you doing? So, Dana, I know you weren't press secretary then. Where were you when no. the president was uh, in New York and making that speech? Peter and I had been living in San Diego, California, um, for almost three years, and we thought that was where we would always live. Um, and that morning, because you, in California, you tend to get up a little bit earlier so that you can um, work with people who are on the East Coast. So I w- got up around 540 and Peter brought me my hot English breakfast tea with honey, which I always had every morning. And he took our dog at the time was named Henry and he took him outside and I got up and went into the living room and turned on the TV. And I was kind of squinting at the TV and I said, it looks like the World Trade Center is that, a, is that smoke? And then um, right then I saw the second plane hit. But I, di- I didn't exactly know what I was seeing because I had just woken up and I ran outside and yelled for Peter to come back. And we spent the rest of the day just trying to keep up with the news. And, um, you know, I had a lot of friends who worked in Washington in the Bush administration and on Capitol Hill because of my time that I'd spent there in the late 90s. So I was reaching out to people to see if they were okay, and um, 
yeah, we were riveted. Um, and I ended up coming back to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. in October of 2001. And that's when I joined the Justice Department. And then you'd end up uh, over at the White House. Remember, the president wanted to be an education president, right? And he was actually speaking to a class at the time when the towers were hit. It shows you how dexterous you have to be uh, for world events if you have that office. Oh, you know, I'd love to mention something, Brian, because I always think about this, um, and this can happen at any time to any presidency, where on one day you're talking about a certain issue and the next day you never talk about that again. Um, On September 10th of 2001, many people that worked in the White House at the time in communications had stayed late at the office, and they were working on this really big story that was coming out in the New York Times the next day, and they were deciding how to handle it. They were working on making sure that they had everything in place in the morning because the story was going to be so bad. And that story was about the Cheney Energy Task Force, which, looking back, doesn't seem so controversial, right? Right. But the next morning, of course, 9-11 happened, and I don't think anyone ever talked about the task force again. Yeah, he met with oil executives to find out the way forward in terms of his energy policy. How dare he? Uh, What was he thinking? Um, But, uh, Dana, so— have you talked to the president recently as this day gets closer? Is this something that he will talk about a lot or? Well, I think, yes, you know, we're in communication. Um, I, I, I would describe it this way. Even on days when we would be doing something fun, like throwing out the first pitch at a baseball game or going to an education event, what I observed was that he was never the same after 9-11. Um, one very focused because you could see that even if we're having fun at, at, at the baseball game, he in, in one part of his brain was constantly thinking, are we doing everything we can to prevent that from happening again? And the other thing was he was very conscientious about making sure that people understood that this was a generational war and we're 19 years since, and you know, a, a generation is what 20 to 35 years or so. Mm-hmm. And America has pulled together and done such an amazing job of not, I'm not going to say eliminating the enemy, but we have um, beaten them back into a corner. And our nation is much more able now to prevent terrorist attacks and to take the fight to the enemy because we didn't start the war. You know, the war came to our shores. And I, I think that we kind of forget about how much we have accomplished in these 20 years. We should be proud of that. And killing the first generation of al-Qaeda, Zawahiri, I think, is the only one left right now, and including a couple of bin Laden's sons and eventually him. So, And that was the nexus of it. Think about this, Dana. There was, and I know you do. Remember the outrage on Gitmo? Oh, well, Gitmo's got to be closed. And what is George Bush 43 doing? That's not what America stands for. Really? Terrorists who want to kill America? We put them in a place where we control in order to watch them and interrogate them. Should we capture somebody else? The outrage. How dare we keep 200 people under lock and key who want to kill us? Now think about this. China has thousands of Muslims who have been jailed in a concentration camp for being Muslim. That's it. They have shown no terrorist tendencies for the most part. Where's the outrage? How come it's, it's outraged on America actions and China's action is no outrage? I think we should be I think we should be much more outraged about it and much more vocal about it. But I also ask, Brian, where are the Arabic countries on this? Exactly. Why don't they stand up for those Muslims? Where's their outrage? They don't have any. I agree. And 
so I yes, I mean, you know, um, after World War II, people said um, never again, but it is happening again. We know this. We have the satellite images. We have the first-person testimony. You know about the forced abortion. I mean, this is um, it's it's slavery. It's they're hostages. They're being brainwashed, and there should be a lot more outrage, but also perhaps not just outrage, but action. Two things that I know you could appreciate because you like the nuances of politics and you like to go deep into issues, get different perspectives. <laughs> so, so here's, here's two things I'd like you to think about. Joe Biden, who looks at this atypical candidate, unorthodox to say the least. We can all agree on that. President Trump is unorthodox. But Joe, Joe Biden, a traditional politician for 47 years, has taken two issues from the president. Tough on China. Now they're our enemy. And the other issue is make it in America. I mean, they're both things that President Trump ran on, but Joe Biden's trying to take after the primaries. Will he be successful? Isn't that a bit of an insult to the electorate? Well, one thing I think it's maybe it's, it might be cold comfort, but I think that one of the things that President Trump can be proud of is, um, do you remember when President Obama, when he went in, became the president, they wanted to... Um, turn away from the Middle East, and they were going to pivot to China, yeah. or pivot to Asia, excuse me. Um, and what happened, Brian, so they pivoted to Asia, and they took their eye off the ball, and ISIS was able to rise up. President Trump gets in, has to deal with ISIS, does it well. Um, but I also think that collectively the nation has seen that, if you think about Nixon's um, trip to China, right, yep. and people think about your Nixon to China moment, I mean, there was I think that in some ways we're focusing on – we're criticizing people from the past for things that were decided in the past with the information they had in the past. But President Trump has been able to turn the ship, and he's doing, done it with evidence. But I also feel like the private sector also was starting to realize that, in particular under President Xi, who now wants to be president for life, this is a very different Chinese leader than we've seen before. And he is ruling with an iron fist and – he has given us a worldwide pandemic, and I, I think that most Americans are, mm-hmm. are where President Trump is. But the Democrats were coming along that way partly because of Bernie Sanders. And the Democrats have moved leftward on many issues. I'm not, I don't even know if the China issue is left or right. I think it is just now America has a new focus, right? So we have to keep our eye on the ball in terms of radical Islamic terrorism. Mm-hmm. But there is another economic uh, enemy, uh, maybe too hard, strong rival. word, but uh, yeah, I think rival. Well, it, I, I think that's too weak a word, right? Because China is ruthless, threat, and doesn't care about human individualism or freedom or its people. We do. So I want you to hear Joe Biden talk about free trade. Now, remember, I'm I fully aware that Republicans and, and some Democrats were for free trade. If you level the playing field, it's a way to have peace. If you're trading with a country, it's hard to be fighting that country. I know all about that, and Ronald Reagan was a free trader. So Joe Biden talks about NAFTA, which now most Americans realize it means theft of jobs. Cut eight. Cut five. 80,000 good-paying jobs came back. He's lost 50,000 of those jobs since he's been president. The fact of the matter is NAFTA was not the deal that was sold. When Bush said we were going to have enforcement mechanisms in NAFTA, they didn't do it. That's why after it passed, 
and, and he did not insist on that. I was against NAFTA, and we tried to begin to change it because it didn't keep the deal that was made. There was none, the enforcement mechanisms were abandoned. Yeah, there's a little problem with that, isn't there? It was Bill Clinton that passed NAFTA, and it was Bill Clinton yeah. that, that didn't put the mechanisms in place. So that is indeed the problem, which led Jake Tapper to say this to Joe Biden. Cut seven. But doesn't he deserve some credit for that? It's better. The USMCA is better than NAFTA. It is better than NAFTA. I'll tell you what we did do. We inherited the greatest recession short of a depression. Okay. Not really the answer to the question. Uh, <laughs> but but the president did do a better job. I mean, that was some misdirection. I got to look, you got to handle him. That was some <laughs> misdirection right there. I don't know if he didn't understand it, but he was just like, I'm just going to go back to my talking points that we inherited a recession. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm just so I'm just saying it's getting interesting now because I am so tired of he's killed people and this guy's terrible. I, I want to get into it. What Biden's America looks nothing like the America he's talking about, because I believe that there's a, the pull to him to be this environmentalist that destroys uh, destroys fossil fuels will be so great. I don't see him doing anything but giving in to Schumer, who said this yesterday. We're going to be really pushing for it to stop global warming and climate change that's causing the fires in California. Really? That's really worked well, this alternative of energy in California, where they tell you to put your thermostat up to 78 degrees. And sorry, we haven't really adapted to this new uh, form of air conditioning. Also, lightning strikes caused most of the fires. So, Which is um, Trump's fault. He, he ran for lightning. Uh, and I was... You know, it's, it's, the fact that our public forests have not been managed well, our state you know, and state forest land has not been managed well, is partly due to all of these lawsuits that environmentalists um, file. And so these lands are not being taken care of. Do you know where these fires have not happened? On private forest land. Interesting. Because it's much more well managed. And so I don't... I understand why they talk about climate change. And look, some Republicans are talking about climate change a lot more, too, like um, Congressman Matt Gates down in Florida. There is um, the younger generation definitely wants action on climate change. There was some encouraging news I read yesterday in the Daily Telegraph. That's in Britain, by the way. But thanks to the Internet, I can look it up right there. And it was all about how capitalism has created the space for innovation to be able to fight climate change in ways that the environmentalists or people like Schumer don't ever acknowledge. And that has been some great technological advances, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to hydrogen. So I'm I'm actually bullish on the innovation that's happening. I think it's happening sort of quietly. And one of the things President Trump has done is on the deregulation front, yes, Mm -hmm. he's helped. But also, he's such a lightning rod for controversy and press coverage that you have no idea what's going on at any of the federal agencies. <laughs> They're just there doing their job. Right. It's like we're talking about the president's mission. Yeah, we're talking about and, Bob and Woodward. Have, and, yeah, and nobody has – I mean, have you – can you even – when's the last time you heard about a story out of the Department of Energy? That's true. Secretary Perry uh, was under the radar for a while, and uh, he left. He actually did a good job. But it brings me to the other point. If you are going to run as we're going to go solar and leave fossil fuels behind, I want you to tell me. And if the younger generation propels you into office because of that, game on. That's where our system works. But please don't get into office and tell me you're not going to touch fracking and destroy fracking. And don't tell me you're going to destroy oil and gas and you're not going to touch it and you do exactly that. 
because that's dishonest, and that's not the person you put into office. You don't win Texas. You don't win Pennsylvania. You don't win Ohio if you go ahead and do those things. And that's that's what I worry about. It's not what he is saying. It's what he's not saying. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not saying a lot, but I do think it is helpful. <laughs> it is helpful for somebody like a Jake Tapper and hopefully somebody uh, at Fox News, maybe Dana Perino on the Daily Briefing. Let's yep. get an interview with Joe Biden. Um, but if you think about the press conference that he had last week where the 10 questions were asked of Biden that were just embarrassing because they were oh. the so- most softball, easy questions. The, the interview he did yesterday with Jake Tapper was not like that. And we're less than well, we're just over two weeks away from the first debate. Um, the rubber, the rubber will hit the road very soon, and that will be when most Americans are paying attention. Mm-hmm. And this race is, I think, right now, fifty-fifty. And I very didn't say that in June. Yeah, it's very interesting. Even though with the hit books from Mary Trump, from Michael Cohen, from Peter Strzok, and now Bob Woodward next week. It's amazing the forces, as well as the Washington Post on the daily basis, the New York Times, MSNBC, and CNN. It's amazing it's this close. And I and we're going to go back in time. We're never. It's going to take forever to put this whole four years in perspective, let alone eight. Uh, and Dana, I'll look for you to do that. Uh, Donald Trump up close and personal <laughs> with Dana Perino. Uh, Dana, we're going to listen to you at 2 o'clock today. Does anybody want a promo? I have um, Congressman Michael Waltz will be on. And awesome. we were talking about the president um, who is going to give the Medal of Honor to um, Sergeant Major Thomas Payne. And um, so we're, he and uh, Congressman Waltz knew him. And this was an amazing person. And uh, so we're going to lift him up. Um, but also, in addition, we're going to talk to Randy Weingarten. She's, um, of course, the president yep. of the te- teachers union. And we're about a, a couple of weeks into school being in um, place. Kids that are in school, seems like it's going pretty well. Kids who are at home, this is not going so well. Yeah, so we're going to talk about it. I got a hybrid situation at home. Dana Perino, thanks so much. Always great. Okay. Okay, right. love you. Bye. All right, back at you at uh, 2 and 5 o'clock. Watch Dana back in a moment. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Got a few more minutes. Always great to have Dana Perino. Looking back at 9 11, uh, it's just amazing how different everything is. Number one, you look at George Bush, I don't think Republican, I think president. Later on, obviously, become partisan when the Iraq war won awry and then they came back and the surge and people took their different sides. I understand that. But what I think and plus we're coming off 2000, in which we couldn't decide who won Florida, 500 votes. And should Al Gore have asked for a recount of the whole state in the Supreme Court if it didn't tilt to the right? Still, we came together to me. Rudy Giuliani this morning really told me something when he came out and said we had so many threats of attacks after the 93 bombing that we were so nervous about something like this happening. But we weren't expecting that. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second. We knew about the 93 terror bombing. They were very familiar with Al Qaeda because they blew up uh, the coal and as well as the embassies. And bin Laden was out there. But yet he didn't call a press conference and say, look out for the next terror attack. They kept it under advisement because they didn't want to destroy the city and the city's economy while they did their job. And I just said, contrast that with George, excuse me, President Trump. President Trump gets word about a pandemic coming. We heard about H1N1. We heard about uh, swine flu. We heard about Ebola. And we handled it. So he said, let me to, to, to Bob Woodward. This could be bad. This could be aerosol. This could be in the air. Okay. So he said he moved and did different things that have all been well chronicled. Then he got Fauci and all these people. They knew about it. But you want to quickly condemn. You're responsible. Why are we so together then? 
And why are we blaming each other now? My hope is after November 3rd, it becomes in vogue to come together. Fingers crossed. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.